0: There are 153 insects, 58 birds, 17 mammals, 3 fish, 3 spiders, 2 reptiles, 1 millipede, and 1 worm, all named for Lionel Walter Rothschild. And who was this guy? Well, for starters, a Rothschild, from the British branch of a family. He was born in 1868, and told his parents at the age of 7 that he would one day run a zoological museum. At first they indulged this hobby of his, buying him kangaroos and exotic birds. But ultimately they decided that enough was enough. Being an animal guy didn't quite befit a scion of the illustrious financial dynasty. So they whisked him off to Cambridge, and when he quit after just two years, they made him join the family business. International banking, that is. Walter, or should I say Lord Rothschild, never really loved the wheeling and dealing. Still, he was forced to stay at the bank, N.M. Rothschild & Sons, for nearly 20 years before he was allowed to pursue his true passion. It was only in 1908, at the age of 40, that his parents finally relented. But as a compensation of sorts, they gave him the money to start his very own zoological collection. Even though a speech impediment made him quite shy, He was an extremely colorful man. He posed for a picture riding a giant tortoise, and in an attempt to prove to Londoners that they could be tamed, he drove a chariot pulled by four majestic-looking zebras all the way to Buckingham Palace. Walter was a conservative member of Parliament, had a collection of more than two million butterflies, and if that wasn't enough, juggled two mistresses. But today, at least in Israel, Walter is remembered most for a short letter he received on November 2nd, 1917, exactly 100 years ago. Dear Lord Rothschild, it began, I have much pleasure in conveying to you, on behalf of His Majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to, and approved by, the cabinet. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Yours, Arthur James Balfour. That's it. The Balfour Declaration. A grand total of 124 carefully crafted and intentionally vague words that changed the fate of the Jewish people. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. Our episode today, a special 100-year anniversary episode, Dear Lord Rothschild. A less-than-intuitive journey in Balfour's footsteps. Now, in the century since Balfour, Britain's mustached foreign secretary, signed his name at the bottom of that declaration, it's become one of the most scrutinized and debated documents around. What, people ask, exactly is a national home?
1: The national home was a vague expression that could be interpreted as the power wished.
0: Who are the mysteriously unnamed non-Jewish communities? If you read the content as a Palestinian, you will see that uh, you
2: are not existing in this declaration because the declaration talks about the Jewish people. But it doesn't mention any uh, sentence or any word Palestinian. That means they're ignoring the Palestinian
3: existence.
0: And why was such an important diplomatic policy relayed in a letter to a private citizen?
3: He was uh, the most distinguished representative of uh, the Jewish community. And in a way, you know, the Rothschilds, they were negotiating with governments and with kings and with rulers.
0: Countless books, articles, and films have analyzed the Balfour Declaration from every possible angle. This week, throughout the country, there are international conferences, public lectures, discussion groups, gala dinners, and exhibition openings, all marking the centennial. So there are many people who spend a lot of time and energy thinking about Balfour and his legacy.
1: My name is Anita Shapira, professor emerita at Tel Aviv University in Jewish history.
0: I
2: am uh, Mahmoud Yazbak. I'm professor of uh, Palestinian studies at the University of Haifa. I'm uh,
3: Doctor Nirit Shalev Khalifa, and uh, I'm a curator and art historian. And uh, I'm now uh, the curator of an exhibition uh, about the Balfour Declaration uh, that will take place in Jerusalem on November second uh, this year, hundred years exactly after the Balfour Declaration.
0: I asked Anita Shapira, who's written extensively on just about every aspect of the Zionist and labor movements, what, at the end of the day, was so important about this one letter.
1: The Balfour Declaration is the first declaration of a a big power that recognizes the connection of the Jewish people as a people to the land of Israel. It's a turning point in Zionist history, no doubt about it, and in the history of the Jewish people. This is what gave the Jews the capability of establishing a state. And as I am an Israeli patriot, I view it in the most
3: favorable way. (laughs)
0: For Niri Chalev Khalifa, the Balfour Declaration is the…
3: A starting point for the conflict between uh, the Jews and Arabs in in the Middle East.
0: And indeed, Mahmoud Yazbak, an Israeli-Palestinian and an expert on 19th and 20th century Palestinian social history, has a different take on the whole matter.
2: The Balfour Declaration started a very important deterioration in the Palestinian uh, history, which at the end resulted in the 1948 uh, Nakba crisis. (laughs) Now, looking 100 years uh, later, after, you understand now that it was a very important moment in the Jewish history, in the Israeli history. But at the same time, this important moment in the Israeli history was a very disastrous, moment in the palestinian history.
0: Yeah, different narratives. We know all about that. But everyone agrees on some basic facts. Towards the end of World War I, the mighty British Empire, then at the height of its power, decided to support the Zionist cause. They had many reasons for doing so geopolitics, economics, trade considerations, immigration policies, religious sentiments, you name it.
1: What was behind the declaration were British interests as they were understood at that moment.
2: England at that time didn't think that the Palestinians would uh, serve the interests of uh, of England. So they wanted somebody to come from outside the Middle East to be planted in the Middle East in order to serve its uh, political
0: interests. Recognizing this window of opportunity, Dr. Chaim Weizmann, a Zionist leader and biochemist working in Manchester, managed, with the help of others, to convince the Brits to put their support down in writing. This was a period of emerging nationalism, and timing was everything.
1: This First World War was one of the last moments in which the great powers could sit around the table, And draw new maps completely out of the blue, completely without reference to the nations that were settled there, etc., etc. For the Zionists, this was an opportunity that had it not happened, I wonder if we would be sitting here today.
0: Had the declaration not happened? Yes. Everyone involved including prominent Jews who opposed the idea, realized that it was an extremely delicate and potentially explosive matter. So there were many drafts of the declaration before it reached its final form.
3: Tens of people worked for months.
0: Every word was contested and evaluated. And the result? A document that is, Nirit says,
3: the basic for building the state of Israel.
0: You see, even a century later, this brief letter still matters. You have to show it and you have to declare it all the time,
3: and no one should forget it.
0: And what about the tall, philosophically inclined British politician who scribbled his autograph at the bottom of the page? Who is Balfour today? Like anything in this country, it depends, of course, on who you ask. Are you personally angry at Balfour? Look, it's, a, it's not a matter of
2: being angry or not. Balfour has given a land uh, which is, doesn't belong to him. I think it was big mistake that have been done for Palestinians.
1: He identified with time, with the Zionist project in Palestine. He visited the country in 1925. He was vilified by the Arabs. And the more he was vilified, the more identified he was with the Jews.
3: He is a saint for the Jewish people. His face became like a Jewish
0: icon. But in London's upper crust circles, there's some people for whom Balfour is much more than just a historical figure, whether vilified or celebrated. For them, he's, well, family. Act one, meet the Balfours. Here's Donna Harmon.
4: That's the famous Lord Salisbury. Wait, just just let me say that we're in the bathroom, in the loo. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm squished in here in a very small bathroom or as the Brits call it, the loo, in this fashionable apartment in Chelsea, London. It's me, our elegant host, and our sound woman, Shear, who, surprised our conversation as getting going in this location, whips out her iPhone to record. Our host is wearing a beautiful soft gray suit, this understated but expensive baby blue tie and a pocket handkerchief. He's peering through horn-rimmed glasses at framed caricature portraits from the last century hung on the walls of the bathroom, giving us an introduction, so to speak, to the members of his aristocratic family.
5: Uh, all us Brits uh-huh. always keep these sort of things in our loos. We don't sort of have them out and about the Why? So Why is that? I don't know, it just is It's one of those sort of things. I think it's not sort of showing off too much, you know.
6: Uh-huh.
5: So that's the famous Lord Salisbury, A wonderful picture of him. Then that is Arthur.
4: Arthur, as in Arthur James Balfour. Yes, the very same guy who penned the very aptly named Balfour Declaration. And our host here, Drumroll please, is none other than Lord Balfour himself. <laughs> yes, that's right. Okay, not the original Lord Balfour who sent the famous letter to Lord Rothschild. That one, Arthur James Balfour, known as AJB, was born in 1848 and he passed away age 81, an avid tennis player almost until the end in 1930. So who is this Lord Balfour?
5: I am Arthur Balfour's great-great-nephew, and he had no children, so everything went sideways to his brothers and then down to me. So I've got the present mantle of being Lord Balfour. In many ways, it's a great honor, and on certain occasions, it's, I get all the blame.
4: Today's Lord Balfour, friends call him Roddy, was born in 1948, like the State of Israel, a hundred years after his great-great-uncle. He works as an international tax advisor to wealthy families and lives with his wife Tessa, that would be Lady Balfour, between this flat in London and their family estate in Sussex, on the grounds of the 1,000-year-old Arundel Castle. There's a lot going on on the morning I visit. London traffic outside an open window, someone making tea in a back room, and a poppin' from the lady of the house.
5: He had been born with, as I put it, Tess?
7: Yes. Hi.
5: Hi, are you, this is Dana, Hi. You. this is Tessa. Hi.
4: She immediately tells me about their recent trip to Israel.
7: And we had a fantastic, amazing time in Jerusalem. We were just, oh, I was just, people came up to Rod and said, you know, can I shake your hand? I'm sure, And it I'm was sure. just an amazing experience for me, actually. Any case, okay, I won't interrupt you anymore. Anyway. Thank you so much. Lovely, lovely Thanks. To you
5: both. You're Bye. off in a minute, are you, my love?
4: Lady Balfour is actually an aristocrat in her own right. Her father was the 17th Duke of Norfolk, but that's a whole other story back to the current Lord Balfour. His full name is Roderick Francis Arthur Balfour. He's the fifth Earl of Balfour.
5: The Israeli Embassy never ever gets my title right on invitation.
4: It's ironic. <laughs> really? What do they yes. write? All sorts of things. Really Like the
5: Earl Roderick Balfour, Lord Roderick Francis Arthur Balfour I mean things
4: We like complete our bathroom tour.
5: That is the Duke of Argyle and his sister was my great-grandmother.
4: Hmm. and settle on the couch in the living room, surrounded by framed photographs of Lord and Lady Balfour posing with their four glamorous-looking grown-up daughters or with other aristocrats and royals. I ask him what stories all these present-day Balfours tell about their famous ancestor, who was in government for 28 years, one of the longest ministerial careers in modern British politics, second only to Winston Churchill.
5: He inherited a vast amount of land and wealth when his father died very young. He had seven or eight brothers and sisters. They were a highly intellectual family. Arthur himself was no slouch when it came to intellect. He was a very clever man. So he was very comfortable. He was the first prime minister to have his own motor car would liked like to drive into Downing Street? He was always helping out the
4: family.
7: So in the family, Arthur Balfour's like a superhero. We absolutely yeah. love him. We have his portrait on the walls.
4: That's one of said glamorous daughters, Lady Kinvara Claire Rachel Balfour, whom I meet up with later. Kinvara is 41, energetic, fun, and was briefly married to a count, of course. She's English, naturally, but now lives in L.A., where she works as a writer, producer, fashion pundit, and sort of ambassador of cool.
7: I'd love to sit with him and say, like, why didn't you get married and what love affairs did you have and who loved you?
4: She's back in rainy England for a visit, and I catch up with her at her fancy private fitness club right before Pilates class. Her blonde hair is pulled back, and she's sipping an energy drink. In the background, you might be able to hear another member having his afternoon tea. It's fair to say that neither Kinvara nor her father grew up thinking too much about their ancestors' role in the creation of the State of Israel. Or, for that matter, about the State of Israel at all.
5: British children don't learn about the Balfour Declaration.
4: Neither of them have ever seen the actual document.
7: So is the actual Balfour Declaration in the British Library? I can't believe we have never seen the Balfour Declaration. Yeah. I've never known that it was there.
4: Lord Balfour, in all fairness, does have a facsimile of the Declaration. He keeps it. Where else? In one of the loos at the Sussex Estate. Despite, shall we say, their slim early interest in the whole thing, there came a point in both Lord Balfour and Kinvara's lives when they realized that, to some people, the Balfour Declaration was a super big deal. In LA, for example, a city all about celebrating its various stars, Kinvara is probably the only one who gets name recognition based on a short document from 1917.
7: I've made friends with so many Israelis. I'm very celebrated, and they're all super excited. I say, yeah, he was my great-great-uncle, and he's super cool, you know, and great.
4: One time, Kinvara tells me, her last name got her invited to a pretty surreal dinner party at the Beverly Hills Hotel, with then-president Shimon Peres, who was in town. Her agent, a Jewish guy, called her and said,
7: Balfour, you're a Balfour, you're coming for this dinner. And so I thought, right, now I have to do a lot of homework.
4: She quickly reached out to one of her best friends, who, like the agent, is Jewish, for a speed Birth of a Nation tutorial.
7: So that I would do all my balfour declaration homework and really get it all up to scratch. Should I be sat next to or speak with Mr. Perez?
4: She did sit next to him, but lucky for her, the conversation was mostly about Facebook. Paris had just been on a visit to their headquarters. And then there was this mysterious Russian woman at the table who got up and sang, Happy Birthday, Mr. President. Even though it wasn't actually anyone's birthday. So that took up a lot of attention.
7: I didn't really put my homework to good use because no one really asked me that much about the Balfour Declaration. And then one of his aides kind of got up and said, Mr. Press needs to go now. And that was kind of the end of dinner. And it was just so LA. <laughs>
4: Lord Balfour explains that it's important to consider his ancestor's declaration in its historical context. This is especially the case when it comes to responding to the calls for an apology from the British government that are being made by certain Palestinian groups.
5: I find it it very odd.
4: He gives me a short history lesson about those historical circumstances.
5: You know, one of our main concerns was the security of the Suez Canal.
4: He mentions...
5: Colonial priorities, there was the war priority.
4: The caveat that...
5: Oil hadn't featured quite so much in the Middle East by that stage.
4: And of course, the fact that so many of Britain's leaders at the time were religious millenarians, who believed that restoring the Jews to the Holy Land would hasten the second coming of Christ.
5: You know, it has to be remembered that Lloyd George, Alfa, all that generation, they went to church on Sundays twice often i went to church twice every sunday while i was at school and i went to chapel every day at school so what did we hear we heard the old testament we heard about the covenant of abraham we we heard about moses we read deuteronomy exodus you know sang the psalms of david i mean the idea that that somehow we didn't think that it was perfectly natural for the jews to live in Palestine. In fact, I think I was brought up sort of assuming that Palestine was already full of Jewish people.
4: I try and find out, considering that the first Lord Balfour wrote the famous letter to Lord Rothschild, whether there's a je ne sais quoi between the two titled families. As it happens, the current Lord Balfour, in his capacity as an international tax advisor, actually works for the Rothschilds these days. I
5: worked for them 15 years. Evelyn, David, Eric, Terrific people. Terrific.
4: But, he insists, they talk tax returns, not Jewish homelands.
5: Absolutely not. No. And it never really came up.
4: That said, there was a Balfour Declaration, Where Are They Now? epilogue of sorts, some years back, when Lord Balfour found himself on a business trip to Israel on behalf of billionaire financier Sir Evelyn Rothschild. Israel's then-president, Ezra Weitzman, the nephew of Chaim Weitzman, heard that a balfour was in town and invited him to tea. It was a lovely historical moment in a way, but one which was lost, as it turns out, on the security guys at Ben Gurion Airport.
5: So I must have been in Israel for 48 hours. And in those days, you were grilled far more by the security forces when you left than when you came into the country. So this guy was giving me a grilling, grilling, grilling. So I said, well, this is what I've been doing. And I put down my Invitation from the president and all the rest of it. Interesting. But what were you doing the other 48 hours?
4: <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I guess, being called Balfour just doesn't cut it among the Zionists in the way it used to. But just in case anyone over there at security is listening and feels compelled to write Lord Balfour a quick note to smooth things over, I'd recommend addressing him correctly.
8: If
5: you're being technically correct, on the envelope, you'd write, The Right Honorable, the Earl, or Earl of Balfour.
0: Dana Harmon. In the north of Israel, there's one small time capsule of a place that has a special Balfour connection. It's a beautiful agricultural village tucked away between Nazareth and Afula. And it's where Zev Levi encountered a quickly vanishing breed of Israelis. Act two, and the Lord came over with his car.
9: A few hours' drive from Israel's bustling center is the Jezreel Valley. It's this expansive plain of brown and green agricultural land, bracketed on all sides by tree-lined hills with patches of cement buildings. On our way to the valley, we pass through Wadi Ara with its hodgepodge of humble homes, impressive mansions, well-known restaurants, and oil-stained auto repair shops. With the town of Umelfachem towering over us, we watched as an old man on a donkey marched 20 goats across a busy four-lane highway in just a few seconds. It seemed like an impressive feat, but then again, I don't really know anything about goat herding. We were on our way to Moshav Balfuria, a small village nestled in the middle of the valley. Balfouria was one of the first agricultural collectives established in the land of Israel after the Balfour Declaration and was named in Balfour's honor. It's 46 Mishakim, or small private farms, have changed very little since it was founded back in 1922. There it is. There's Balfouria. Driving through the yellow sliding gate of Balfouria's main entrance felt like inching into the past. Everything slowed down as if we'd stepped into a Meir Shalev novel. By the main roundabout, a giant hand-painted sign read, Balfouria Celebrates Shavuot, a festival that happened four months ago. Under the warm sun, a few old timers were busy working in their yards, farming with well-worn hand tools.
10: How's it going? Hey. Thank you so much.
9: Eager to show off the village to us city folk, Amatsya Gilat, one of said old timers, immediately launched into a history lesson. Pointing to the gate we had just passed through, he told us about another, more celebrated visit, Lord Balfour's, in 1925.
10: Lord Balfour came over to visit the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Of course, he
9: came to the place called after him. is nearly 80, a proud representative of a dwindling generation who vividly remember the British mandate, the birth of the state, and the war of independence. I was born in Balfouria in
10: 1939. My uh, parents were children of the
9: settlers in Balfour. So I am a third generation here. Amatsia has calloused hands, unruly chest hair, and a forehead free of wrinkles. He wore aviator sunglasses and a broad smile as he described Balfour's visit. People all over the valley came over here. Jewish and Arabic, you know, Bedouins. They all lined the road mounted on their
10: horses. And the Lord came over with his car, passing in the beautiful gate they made My mother was a child at the time, seven or eight years. She and another girl brought the flowers to the Lord and they were very excited to be
9: the ones who received the Lord in Balfuria. Balfuria is quiet and unpolished with only a handful of streets, each the width of a single car, all lined with plots of land that are deeper than they are wide. Interspersed with open fields, each property looks like a self-contained garden of Eden. We visited Amatsya's neighbor, Yizhar Be'er.
11: Each season, its own uh, fruit and vegetable. Watermelon, you see? My chicken here.
9: Yizhar is a short, well-built man with cropped white hair. He greeted us in an unbuttoned shirt with sleeves rolled up his forearms. He used to be a journalist, but a few years ago he transitioned into a full-time farmer. Everything about him from his firm handshake to the dirt under his fingernails to his smiling chapped lips suggests that his old desk job couldn't be further from his mind.
11: My father passed away and he left for his uh, three children uh, this piece of land in Balfouria and I I got uh, about 10 dunam of empty field and since then in the last uh, five years I make my
9: paradise. Yishar gave us a tour of his paradise, which is just about the size of two football fields put together.
11: In a few weeks, I will harvest the olives and we will make uh, oil and uh, olives to it. I start uh, growing up uh, bees.
9: I have honey. Yeah, you grow everything. While commending Yishar's bounty, Amatsya noticed that the only thing he lacked was cows. I see that poultry
10: and only cows, you miss cows, you have to bring a cow or two.
9: hard. disagreed.
10: Cows? Okay.
11: No, it's, I want to be more independent.
9: <laughs> After a glass of homemade lemonade and some biscuits, Amatya suggested that we all drive around the village. You see, all the black fields
10: are prepared for the winter, for wheat or whatever. Other uh, winter crops. You can see also olives orchard over there, and uh, almonds over there. We turned up a small hill. You see this almond orchard. In a month or two, the
9: leaves will fall down. Near the top of the hill, Amatya pulled over outside a big black iron gate adorned with a large golden magen David. Balfouria Cemetery. Please,
10: come in. Follow me, you know.
9: Maybe you are afraid.
10: (laughs) We are in the Balfouria Cemetery. The first person died here in 1926. It was an old lady. Since then, all the veterans are buried here. Second generation, third generation. We have here some of our young who fell in in israel wars will you be buried here one day maybe (laughs) would it bring you pleasure to be buried in belfario i don't know what will be my pleasure after i'm dead (laughs) but anyhow i think and i hope that i can be buried here with my ancestors a part of our history Only people who were or lived here can be buried here. It's
9: quite a right to be buried here. Amatsya personally knew almost everyone interred in this cemetery. He has childhood memories of the Moshav's founders, tough, hardworking idealists like his grandfather, who was Balfouria's first blacksmith. My grandparents are here.
10: All the stones here you see are of the first settlers in Balfuria. Barf- here is my grandfather. You can see th- this stone.
9: Amatya, how does it feel for you to visit this place?
10: Well, it's quite a feeling. I feel as, you know, as, as you have roots in the ground and you feel it. And the roots starting from here.
9: On the way back from the graveyard, we passed a single row of cypress trees next to a large dirt field. The field looked completely ordinary, but it used to be a magical site that brought real-life superstars to the village. Here's Yizhar again.
11: Many Israelis didn't hear about Balfouria and didn't know where it is because Balfouria was not uh, in the headlines during the last uh, 100 years except
9: in one issue. So what's Balfouria's claim to fame? Their soccer team. Their soccer team from six decades ago, that is.
11: That uh, arrived to the national uh,
9: level. And um, this was the place where they had their ground to play. Amatsia pointed to the unimpressive patch of mulched earth. Behind his sunglasses and stiff upper lip, He seemed to reach all the way back to when he was just a boy, living in a very different Israel. An Israel where National League soccer players lived and worked alongside the rest of the village folk. They didn't make millions or date supermodels. In that Israel, a National League soccer game was a village-wide affair. First of all, it was a celebration. All the people came
10: over with the chairs from home because it was place to sit here. And we don't have a stadium over here. And then it was quite a pride. You see, we were a very small
9: place. And we held a very, very good team who played in the first league. The team, Hapoel Balfouria, had just one weakness. The team was well known as the Worst
11: defense uh, team in football. There was a, a game with, uh, I think, Apoel Gan.
9: They lose 11-0. Actually, the game Uzair is referring to was against Maccabi Tel Aviv. And the score? It was 12-0.
11: Why? The team never practiced. They came to the game directly
9: from the cows and the sheep and the filth. Even though the team spent only two years in the top division and was ranked last both times, and those two years were in the 1950s, the fact that they made the national stage at all is still a great source of pride. We liked our team, our players, they were us. In a flash, a tractor punctured Amatsya's reverie. The boy from the 1950s was gone, and the cheering fans morphed into a handful of workers toiling on the land.
10: Nowadays, you see, it's a field. In the near future, they will
9: build houses all over here. On the way back from the remains of the once-glorious soccer pitch, we again passed by the Moshav's main gate.
11: Look, here is, stop a minute. Balfour and his group came from the junction over there. Came over here. And then, if you see the the green gate, the first floor was built specifically to the visit of uh, Balfour.
9: I stared at the junction in wonder, trying to imagine what it would be like if every time you passed by your front gate, you were transported a century back in time. How would that feel? I feel that I live in as part of history, you know? It is not just a place to live. That's Balfouria, not just a place to live.
0: Zev Levi. This episode of Israel Story is brought to you by Best Day Adventures, who offer specialized trips for active Jewish singles in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. They plan their trips to a T, with top-notch services, fun icebreakers, and an indulgence of enriching discoveries, all designed to create a warm and welcoming environment. In 2018, Best Day Adventures are offering some really extraordinary trips. There's a customized tour of Israel and a beachy New Year's Caribbean cruise. There's a deeply meaningful people-to-people mission to Cuba, where you'll not only sip mojitos and visit Hemingway's house, but you'll also meet and support the local Jewish community. There's even a Northern Lights and Iditarod winter excursion to Alaska. During the day, you'll partake in all the crazy festivities of the world-famous dog sled race. And at night, you'll look up, gazing at the miraculous aurora. Early bird and pay-by-check discounts are in effect for many of the tours. Plus, if you use the code ISRAELSTORY when registering before the end of 2017, you'll get a bonus $50 off. Visit bestdayadventures.com and start packing your bags. Okay, so I've gone through life with one of those names that no one catches at first. Misha, Moishi, Meshi, Misha sometimes it's a drag, and I remember always dreading the first day of school when a new teacher would totally butcher it. But all in all, I think that my name and the fact that no one else I knew shared it kind of became part of who I am, and charted my way. And if that's true in my case, just wait till you meet the heroes of our next story. Hannah Barg brings us to Act 3, What's in a Name.
8: When I visited the Chakak brothers in Kiryat Moshe, a religious neighborhood on the edge of Jerusalem, they greeted me in matching outfits, black pants, a simple white button-down, and the exact same reading glasses hanging around their necks. The two 69-year-old men had matching smiles and matching wrinkles around their eyes. And while I could spot a few differences in their aging features, one had more hair, the other a rounder face, they were unquestionably identical. The kind of twins that can't help but interrupt each other and finish each other's sentences. The dining room table was filled with objects they'd taken out for me to see. There were family photo albums, poetry books, the colorful striped gowns their mother sewed for them as babies, handmade childhood toys. The Hakak brothers you see are collectors of stories, of memories, and of history itself. Partly, that's just who they are, but it's also thanks to their dad, who thrust the weight of history upon them from the very start.
12: Our we were leading the way.
8: Without further ado, here are the twins.
12: I am Herzl
13: Hakak. I'm Balfour Hakak.
8: Yeah, Herzl and Balfour, as in the two legendary champions of Zionism you read about in history books. Only this Herzl and this Balfour were born in 1948 to Jewish parents in Baghdad just a couple of weeks before the establishment of the State of Israel. Their birth was something of a legend itself, at least in their family. Here's Herzl.
12: The midwife, she came, she took me uh, out, but she didn't know that there is a- another one.
8: Keep in mind this was a home birth, in 1948. No heart monitor or anything. So after the midwife delivered Herzl, she went on her way.
12: A fair hour in the quarter, She came again when they called her, and Balfour came to say his declaration.
8: Their miraculous birth brought comfort to a grieving family. Seven years earlier, in 1941, their mother's two brothers were killed in the Farhud, a massacre against the Jews of Baghdad. In a way, she thought of her beautiful boys, Herzl and Balfour, as compensation for her loss. After their birth, a rabbi told the family, you received two for two. So maybe you're wondering how identical twins born in Baghdad ended up being named for two prominent European statesmen. Balfour explains.
13: My father was an activist in the Zionist underground in Baghdad.
8: And when his twins were born, he knew he wanted to pay tribute to the Zionist movement's towering figures. Since we were born,
13: we were walking symbols. Our names were Erzel and Balfour, so it was something symbolic of redemption, of independence.
8: And had they been triplets? If he had
13: three sons, it was Erzel, Balfour, and Whiteman. But he has only two,
8: so he has to choose. Two years after the twins were born, the Chakak family was in trouble. Someone had squealed on Ezra, the father, to the Iraqi police, saying that he was donating money to Karen Kayamet, the Jewish national fund. He spent three months in jail before paying off one of the guards.
13: He was uh, released near Lela Seder in, in 1950. It's the night after the Passover Seder, uh, our family escaped from uh, Iraq, Baghdad, to Tehran. We were taken to a secret camp of the Zionist movement in cemetery in Tehran. We were also two years old, we were.
8: That's right. The Jewish agency's transit camp? Was in a cemetery it's called
13: Behestia. Behestia. Behestia means paradise, Pardon. Gan Eden. Behestia cemetery called Behestie paradise,
8: and one called Paradise, no less. So
13: we we were uh, three weeks in, in the paradise in cemetery as uh, little kids. And they they uh, tied to our legs, gnejil bells,
12: to frighten uh, all the bad magic, uh, bad magic powers.
8: After three weeks, the Chakak family left the cemetery and boarded an airplane to Cyprus. From Cyprus, they were taken to Israel, where they lived in a ma'abara, a transit camp. Eventually, they settled in Jerusalem. Here's Herzl. It was something
12: special to be twins in Jerusalem because they didn't know who is who. So if I, I went to the barber and the barber came after one day or two days. He, he said, your
13: hair is oh, it, it, in a day.
8: No one could tell them apart. Actually, the only way people could tell which brother was named for the Zionist leader and which one was named for the British politician was to look down at their wrists. Balfour wore his watch on his left hand, and Herzl, thankfully, wore his on his right. They were excellent students and had photographic memories. Before long, they were both accepted into Jerusalem's most elite high school, where there were just a handful of other Mizrahi immigrant kids. The Chakak brothers gradually became minor celebrities around town. But that was nothing compared to the national fame they attained in the spring of 1965, when they turned 17. That's when Herzl and Balfour participated in the second International Bible Competition. You may remember the International Bible Competition from one of our previous episodes. If you don't, all you need to know is that this competition is a big deal. And in 1965, it was an even bigger deal. Herzl and Balfour immediately stood out. While they came from a traditional home, they weren't religious like most of the other competitors. But in the preliminary rounds, they were heads and shoulders above everyone else. In the Jerusalem-wide competition, Herzl won first place, and Balfour was the runner-up. And in the national round, they once again came out on top, together with Chagi Menarzi, who, incidentally, is Sara Netanyahu's older brother. In any event, this meant that the Chakak brothers were among the three teenagers who represented Israel in the final stage, the International Competition, on Yom Haatzmaut, Independence Day, 1965. The auditorium in Jerusalem was packed with 22 Bible whizzes from 12 different countries. Proud family members and eager journalists filled the hall. Everyone stood up as trumpeters announced the entrance of the Prime Minister, Levi Eshkol, along with Yitzhak Rabin, the Chief of Staff, and other dignitaries like Abba Ibn and David Ben-Gurion. Pumped full of adrenaline, the Chakak twins were ready to go. They both reached the final round when just three contenders were left standing. Balfour, Herzl, and the U.S. champ, Esther Rose Freilich from Far Rockaway, Queens. Balfour had an almost perfect score, and Esther was far behind. But Herzl, in second place going into the last stretch, could still theoretically catch up to his brother and win it all. And that's when, at least this is what Herzl claims, a delightful backstage distraction thwarted his would be comeback.
12: Before I, was, uh, on, I was on the stage, on, on the... and I, I went to the room with an American. Right? With a, American, the American she, was, she was the champion of uh, American diaspora. And to be with uh, someone, a ginger, a redhead, uh, you forget all, all, all the Bible. So I, I lost in the winds.
8: The redhead from America, he says, made him forget all his Bible verses. Balfour was crowned the champ. Herzl was the silver medalist. Esther, with her powerful ginger locks, went back to New York, where she later became a math professor, and believe it or not, the mother of eight The first and second place finishes of the identical, memorably named twins from Jerusalem plunged them into Israeli stardom. They were invited down to Steboker to meet with Ben-Gurion and to the president's house in Jerusalem for an audience with Zalman Shazar. And basically ever since, Herzl and Balfour have continued to thrive. Both went on to become respected poets, each serving three terms as chairman of the Hebrew Writers' Association.
13: It's a unique phenomenon, the two identical twins, are writing poems. We, we didn't find in other country two identical twins They both are poets and writers. We are doing everything together. He's my editor and I'm his editor. When we talk to each other, sometimes I can feel I'm talking to myself because it's a, one person is divided to two persons.
8: They both married Ashkenazi women. Balfour's wife is Polish and Herzl's is Russian, and they had children, many of whom became ultra-Orthodox. And throughout it all, the weight of their birth names guided their way.
13: It's right, we fulfilled the dreams of our parents. They dreamed that they will have a Zionist sons, and we fulfilled our, their dreams. They were uh, satisfied.
8: To continue what his father had started, Balfour decided his marriage should pay tribute to his namesake. He convinced his fiance to share their wedding anniversary with the anniversary of the Balfour Declaration.
13: I, uh... I made my wedding in the 2nd of November, and Herzl was jealous as he made his, uh, his wedding on the day of Jabotinsky.
8: Even as they approach 70, Herzl and balfour Hakak remind me of childhood twins who want to be both better than and exactly like each other. They see each other almost every day, and when they don't, they talk on the phone. Their wives listen in on these conversations simply to know what their husbands are up to. Theodore Herzl and Lord Arthur James Balfour could not have imagined the Iraqi-born twins who came of age with the State of Israel. The Chakaks are proud Zionists who have made history in their own small way. And till this very day, the only discernible difference is the hand on which each wears his watch.
0: Hannah Barg All right, we've got one last story in our search for Balfour. Act four, not your typical landlady. These days, when most Israelis hear the name Balfour, they don't think of good old Arthur James, his phenomenal facial hair, or his philo-Semitic declaration. Instead, the first association that comes to mind is a street, a street in Jerusalem, Balfour Street. And what's so special about that street? Well, a lot of things, really. But probably nothing more than the identity of the resident living at number three. The Prime Minister. That's right. America has Pennsylvania Avenue. The Brits have Downing Street. And we? We've got Balfour. Abba, do you think that there's some symbolism in the fact that the Prime Minister of Israel lives on Balfour Street?
6: Yeah, you can you can impute symbolism to anything. If you want to think it's a symbolic uh, thing, okay. But this prime minister's building is now, by decision of the government, going to be moved. There goes your symbolism.
0: You know that it's Bibi's birthday today. Mazel tov. I asked my dad, David, to meet me on Balfour Street.
6: Okay, we're we gonna do. We're we gonna walk here. This
0: was, after all, where he grew up. Yeah, our home was right down this street
6: uh, to the left on Disraeli Street, a street named for another British prime
0: minister. So would you come here a lot when you were a kid?
6: Yeah, I walked up and down here all the time. I walked on this street at least once or twice a day, because this was the route that you took from
0: our apartment into the center of town. We set out on a little stroll down memory lane.
6: Yeah, well, this building right here to our right, there were a, very, a number of very important people who lived in that building the one uh, who lived on the first floor uh, was professor michelson who was my ophthalmologist and prescribed my first glasses when i was nine years old and um, uh, on the top floor lived uh, moshe sharet who was israel's second prime minister was his private apartment
0: it's not a particularly fancy building or anything, it's just an apartment building.
6: It's an apartment building where I walk-up, in fact. Sharet walked up two flights. In this building also lived Zalman uh, and Rachel Shazar. Zalman Shazar became Israel's third president. Why did all these people live on this one street? Well, it was walking distance from where they worked, prime minister's office.
0: Just sit with that for a second. The reason all these founding fathers and mothers of the state lived here in modest apartment buildings was because they could walk to work. No limos, no motorcades, just feet. There were also other houses on Balfour Street. Older, single-family houses.
6: Like the one right here to our right, which is where our very close friend Walter Aitan
0: lived. So these were Arab buildings originally? This one. That were so, yeah. left or forced to leave in 48? I believe so. And then they were basically annexed by Jews?
6: Mm, Yes. And this building over here, which is a brand new building, brand new, was built in the the 50s, was where a classmate of mine, Nira Barakiva, lived, and we used to have class get-togethers there. Yeah, and across the street in this building lived uh, Amir Shor, another classmate of mine. And Amir and Nira ultimately got married. And uh, these they, two classmates that lived across the street from each other. Yeah, but they were not going together when we were kids. Now I think it was this building, if I'm not mistaken.
0: That was. My the dad church. had stories about each and every house. One was where Alex Kanan used to live. Alex was a professor uh, at the Hebrew
6: University, friend of the families.
0: Another was the home of Yitzchak Nisim, the Sephardic chief rabbi. My dad told me tale after wonderful tale of Jerusalem in the 1950s, but none of them captivated my imagination as much as the story about when he and an unusual roommate shared the big old house on the corner of Balfour and Smolenskin.
6: I've told you the story six times, it's recorded ten times. Again, you want me to tell you? Yeah, again
0: in uh, May of 1962. My dad, who was then 18, came back to Israel in order to go into the army. He had been living with his family in Washington DC for a few years, since his dad, Abe, was serving as an Israeli diplomat there. My father was going to be what's called a chayal boded, a lone soldier whose family doesn't reside in the country. And he needed to find a place to live. So, a week or two before he was supposed to go into the army, my dad and his dad came to Israel— it was quite a trip back then— to go apartment searching. And that's how, on a warm day of early summer, they found themselves trekking up Gaza Street, in Jerusalem's Rehavia neighborhood.
6: Checking out a few places which I could rent. And as we were walking, a car, a pretty fancy car by the standards of those days, stopped and the window rolled down and an elderly lady poked out her head and said, "Aben David, what are you doing here? The elderly lady in question? It was Golda Meir, who was then the foreign minister, my father's boss, and an old-time family friend.
0: Jerusalem was a small town in those days. A place where it made sense that you'd bump into the foreign minister and start chit-chatting. In any event, they told Golda they were looking for a room for my dad, who was about to go into the army. And she immediately said, stop looking. I live in a house a block and a half
6: away from here, which is all empty, and it'd be a pleasure if you just came and took a room there. And two days later, I moved in.
0: What did you think when she said, come live with me?
6: I was delighted, it was a good address, great location, low rent.
0: So Golda was your first roommate?
6: She was not my roommate. We were housemates. I was her boarder.
0: Golda was then living in the foreign minister's official residence at number 3 Balfour Street, which later on became the prime minister's house. What was it like living with Golda?
6: Well, firstly, um, Golda was a very warm and wonderful person. And I would say somewhat lonely. I mean, she was this important woman. She would come home, uh, usually late in the
0: evening, to uh, usually an empty house. On a typical night, my dad recalls, she would swing by his room and very softly say, David, are you there?
6: And I would come down, and we would sit and have tea. And she would take a sugar cube and break it in the palm of her hand and put one half in each cheek. And that's how she drank her tea. And she drank her tea and, uh, and smoked. She smoked unfiltered Chesterfield cigarettes. And uh, we would sit around the table in the famous kitchen, Golda's kitchen, and spend hours uh, discussing this, that, and the other.
0: Now, living with the foreign minister wasn't exactly the most normal way to spend your military service.
6: I was in a unit where we were told,
0: uh, and I kept to it
6: assiduously, not to say anything about what we're doing. It was an intelligence unit. So when she asked me what I was doing in the army, I would say, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. She said, you can tell me.
0: (laughs) It's okay. My dad lived with Golda Meir for close to four years and still talks about her and that period with a mixture of nostalgia and admiration.
6: As far as I was concerned, in addition to having a good friend, and a very warm sort of mother figure. Uh, Once I had a toothache and Golda prepared some grandma's remedy for me with salt which she fried and then put in a handkerchief and I put it on my cheek and it didn't help, mind you. But beyond that, thinking back, I basically had a front row seat uh, during a critical period of this country's development Uh, seeing the workings of uh, government, to just be a a fly on the wall while all this was going on is uh, one of the most significant experiences of my life.
0: Today, Bibi and Sarah live in that grand old house. And things are a bit less village-like than the days in which my dad and Golda would go grocery shopping together or catch the late-night showing at the Eden Cinema downtown. There's a tall wall surrounding the house, and severe looking shabakniks don't let you get close. The entire block is now closed off, and we had to get special permission just to stand there and talk.
6: I told them I was just coming through to uh, record some uh, memories with my son, and they uh, said, okay, just don't take pictures. This was totally o- open when I was a kid. None of these cameras were here. Nothing. And uh, there were two elderly policemen at the front entrance, and uh, this was not considered a heavy-duty job for policemen.
0: As we walked back to the car at the end of our little walking tour, my dad noticed a sign in one of the windows.
6: Oh, that's apartments for sale, my god. Huh. It's apartment. You interested? No.
0: You wouldn't want to live on Balfour Street?
6: Uh, location is good. Well, this was a great pleasure.
0: Thank you, Alba. That was fun.
6: Yeah. Don't use a lot of it. What do you mean? How much are you going to use of this? All of it. <laughs> you are not. Huh? You are not. Tov.
0: Yala. Yala, fam. Bye. Uh, see you later. And that's our episode. You can hear all our previous episodes in both Hebrew and English on our site, IsraelStory.org, on iTunes, and on any of the other main podcast platforms. And if you've got a moment, do us a favor, rate us on iTunes and leave a review. That helps us reach new listeners who might not otherwise know about our show. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under IsraelStory. And if you too would like to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, it's easy. Simply drop us a line at sponsor at prx.org. Two quick announcements before we end. The first is that we're coming back to the States in January 2018 with one of our favorite live shows, Roomies, Stories of Living Together. So if you want us to come perform in your city, town, or community, email us at livetour at israelstory.org. And the second is that we're now accepting applications for our next cohort of production interns. The deadline is November 13th, so if you want to join our team, go to our website, IsraelStory.org, where you'll find all the info you need. We can't wait to hear from you. The music in today's episode was composed and performed by Ari Wenig and Yochai Metal. Julie Subrin edited the stories, and Sela Weisblum mixed it all up. Thanks to Naveh Hezkeli and Israel Sivan in Balfouria. To our London crew, Shir Shimoni, Josh Berger, and Simon Wilkinson. To Izzy Ilan Ezrahi, Nomi Schneider, Rotem Tsin, and Oren Harmon. To our friends Esther Werdiger and Wayne Hoffman over a tablet. And to Shelly Dardick and Raphael Bieberfeld who recorded the episode. Whew. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff includes Yochai Meytal, Maya Kosover, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Zev Levi, Hannah Barg, Ari Wenig, and Yuli Shiloch. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back before you know it with a brand new Israel Story episode. So till then, yalla bye. <laughs>
14: And every time I see you, I forget about you. And as one person, I see you. I forget you're here. i לא חופר כדי לא למצוא משמעויות בלפור נגד התנועה אחד סטרי את מבינה תמיד להתרסות אז תחתי לעצמי שאם שוב תהי לי קרובה אני אנסה לברוע מה שאני כבר יודע על אהבה, אני מקווה לשקוע A ira zotlain, klaim, louwe się teleftach pośot, śmes ją, siši, la szukaj, kamel, me la tefet, זה עוד holiko, zero nich dal hizo Firebase> אני מבין ששוב חשבתי בתקן זה כמו להיות הגשם ששוטף עכשיו את בן גוריון כלבים מחרבנים שם כל הזמן הפתקתי להצמישים שוב תהיי לי אני לא אנסה לברוע מה i כבר יודע על אהבה I'm the hospital. the hospital. I'm there for you I'll be I'm not going to ban I I O child asafsa Colca haba dvari selo amarti o